Well, Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas Eve. Uh, speaking of Christmas Eve, our six o'clock service, uh, well, it is, it will be full and, um, it's different than this one in that it's going to be lots of singing. We're going to have an orchestra. It'll be a candlelight event. It's just a great celebration of Christ's birth. So we invite you to come out for that. Matthew chapter 1, I've had you turn to today. And you'll notice that uh, it's uh, a bunch of names that stare at you in the first 17 verses. It's a genealogy. I have in my possession this morning uh, a book that none of you in this room have because it's a book of of partially my family history. On my father's side, it says Laramie County History. And uh, my grandfather and grandmother were married in Denver, Colorado. And then they homesteaded in the early 1900s when you could still homestead in Wyoming. That's where my father was born before he moved to Florida and and California. But uh, there's some great pictures in there of my grandfather on his homestead his little house with his prized team of mules in 1912 and uh, butchering a hog and pictures that are, are precious. It's my family heritage. This last summer when my family and I, my wife and my son and I were in uh, Europe, we tried to trace back our Austrian uh, heritage, uh, which is on both sides of our family, to try to find the birthplace of my great-grandfather in Austria. And it was just a great idea, a thought of how far back do we go, where are we from. Uh, a lot of people do that these days. To find your genealogy is a, is a common thing. In fact, there are internet sites, there are computer programs that help you do that quite effectively and quickly. We want to know uh, where we're from. We want to know about our past. Um, some of us are curious to find out if we're related to maybe royalty or some famous person. Um, What I can ascertain, I am not. But a a number of people uh, are delighted when they find that they are. In fact, there are some associations in our country uh, called the Society of Mayflower Descendants, another one, the Daughters of the American Revolution, and another, the Sons of Union Veterans of the Civil War. People that can trace their lineage back to those famous people and events. I heard about a party that was held for the upper crust of society, the rich and famous of this one particular town. And one woman was going through kind of bragging about her ancestry. She said, you know, you can trace my ancestors all the way back to Alexander the Great. And she was just sort of dropping this on her guests at the party until she said it to one old gal, You know, I can trace my ancestors all the way back to Alexander the Great. How far back do yours go? And the lady just said, I don't know. All of our records were lost in the flood. (laughs) Can't top that one. You have probably never heard a sermon on these verses we're about to look at. Uh, You probably never heard them recited at a Christmas program or musical. None of you has a Christmas card guaranteed in your home that has the first 17 verses of Matthew on it. You'll never find anyone, probably, who would say, you know, my life verse is, and and pull one of these out. In fact, 
Every year when the Christmas story is read, if it's read out of Matthew, you will hear the preacher say, turn to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Because it says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. We like to cut to the chase. We don't like to read the genealogy. It's understandable. I mean, uh, it's tough to get through these names. You're going to hear me try it in just a moment. And, And you start going through this list of name after name after name, and your first thought, quite honestly, is this is boring stuff, unless you're a parent looking for a name for a child that you're about to have, which, by the way, I would say steer clear of this list. I can just see your child being named Zerubbabel or Shealtiel, some of these odd names. But, you know, I thought about it. I looked at these verses and thought, you know, God used up 17 verses for a reason. And is not this the Word of God as much as John 3.16 is? Doesn't the Bible say all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable? I was looking over my Christmas messages the past several years, and you know, I, I've, I've really covered them all. I've done the shepherds and the wise men, and Herod and the people who miss Christmas, and I've done uh, the prophecies in Isaiah and Galatians about the fullness of time. And uh, This one was left. And uh, though I've touched on it many, many years ago, I thought it's worth it to go through this list. And uh, I've discovered, I'm excited about this passage. I've learned lessons in this passage. And I have discovered that some of the driest passages in the Bible yield the sweetest fruit. This did for me when I studied it. But think about it. You have here the family album of your Savior. This is the record. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at some of the names. We don't have time to go through it all in depth. But some of the names may surprise, even shock you. You think, that person is listed here? You know, we all have, or many of us have at least, certain relatives we don't like to mention much. Their pictures aren't prominently displayed in our homes. The black sheep of the family. Listen, Jesus had a whole flock of black sheep. And many of them are listed here. We're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to read through, and then we're going to look at it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. By the way, it's not salmon, even though it's spelled like the fish. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Ammon. Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. 
And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel. Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. And Achim begot Eliud. You see why you don't want to pick your kids' names out of this list? <laughs> Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. Mathan begot Jacob. Jacob begot Joseph. Now there's a name we recognize. The husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Messiah, Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. I want to look at it in two slices. This historical documentation, why is it here? And then a little more in depth at some practical lessons from it. You've noticed, and it's mentioned in verse 17, there are three sections of 14 generations for literary symmetry and also, get this, to commit it to memory. It would make it easier to memorize breaking it up in three groups of 14. You'd say, who'd want to memorize this? People who are in the family. Genealogies were memorized and were produced at various times. But why does the Christmas story begin with a litany of names, a genealogy? There are three reasons. Number one, it's an appeal to history. It's an appeal to history. Have you noticed that every holiday season, Easter and Christmas, the popular press, the print media, as well as the the television, the film media, likes to get... Spiritual. They like to produce some story about Jesus. Who was he? Who is he? How do we really know? And um, there seems every year to be some new, weird, wild reinterpreting of the life of Christ. And the more bizarre they are, the more acceptance they get. I have dug a few of these up over the years. Some people have said that Jesus was a magician. Others, simply a zealot. Others call him an Essene. That was the group that lived by the Dead Sea, that reclusive desert community. Some say Jesus was a guru. Others a world traveler. Some say he was a hypnotist. And then some say that he was the husband of Mary Magdalene with whom he procreated a secret lineage to rule the world. He's been called a Gnostic He has been called an extraterrestrial, you know, an X-file. Hugh Schoenfield, in his popular book years ago in the 60s, said he was a deceiver who staged and plotted his own resurrection. I even found that there's a group that believes that Jesus Christ is simply a code name for a hallucinogenic mushroom used by the first Christians. Amen, have you tried Jesus? And so, every year people ask, well, who was the guy? Did he really even exist? Now, this questioning of the historicity of Christ has gone all the way into Christmas itself. I was emailed this story from the United Press International dated December 7th from London. Quote, Manufacturers eager to be politically correct are retelling the story of the nativity to attract single-parent customers. 
Gone are Joseph and dark-skinned kings from nativity sets, while in other examples, Joseph appears as a rose-complexioned female. The traditional nativity set used in homes throughout the world as part of the Christmas festivities depicts a baby Jesus with Mary and Joseph, her carpenter fiancé in biblical accounts. One spokesman said, well, we have a variety of nativity sets so people can choose what they like best. The nativity sets were designed to appeal to single parents or those with lesbian inclinations. So now we produce nativity sets for single parents and for lesbians. We have recast the entire historical ramifications of the birth of Christ and the life of Christ. That's why this is important. The Christian faith is not rooted in subjectivism, but in objective history. It always appeals to history. And so the genealogy is produced before the story begins. By the way, the birth of Christ in most cultures, certainly in our culture, is still the focal point of history. We say B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. No check is valid unless you have referenced the birth of Christ, the date. No document is considered legal until you have referenced the birth of Christ, the date. So the Bible appears and appeals to history here. Second, it's the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. You know, Jesus was unique in many ways. One of the ways is that His birth was predicted time and time again. Your birth was not. Nobody predicted my birth. I didn't have great Uncle Fred say, Thus saith Uncle Fred, a child by the name of Skip shall be born. They would have said, What kind of a name is that? Now, some tried uh, with my son to predict his birth. It was quite humorous, actually. I had people coming up to me saying, The Lord showed me you're going to have a girl. Others, The Lord showed me you're going to have a son. Of course, you know, you have a 50-50 chance. And uh, half of them were right and half of them were false prophets. But we didn't, we didn't really take it beyond that. Matthew emphasizes here and throughout his writing that Jesus was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy from the Old Testament. Some of the very names listed in the genealogy, like Abraham and David, etc., were recipients of some of these prophecies. For instance, to Abraham God said, In you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. To David God said, Your house, your kingdom will endure forever. That hasn't happened yet. That must happen in Christ. To the prophet Isaiah, the Lord said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from, this time, from that time forward even forever. Now, there are hundreds of such predictions. Time after time, prophet after prophet, predicted his future life. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin and that he would die between two criminals. 
there are detailed prophecies and the genealogies begin to show us, oh, here's the fulfillment of those promises. I have told what I'm about to tell you. I've told you this before on a few different occasions. If you've heard it, don't tune out. You may have forgotten some of the details, but uh, bear with us for the rest who haven't heard it. One of the greatest resources I found on this is a little book by Peter Stoner, professor of mathematics from Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, called Science Speaks, where he calculates the odds of the fulfillment of prophecy concerning Christ. He figures, as do most scholars, there were over 300 predictions made of who this child would be, where he would be born, etc. What would happen, how he would die. 300 predictions. Stoner decided to find out the odds of mathematical probability of the fulfillment of such predictions. According to his research, he said for one man in history to fulfill eight, only eight predictions that Jesus fulfilled would be one in ten to the seventeenth power. A huge number. In fact, that number is so large you could take that many silver dollars and fill the state of Texas two feet thick. If you were to pre-mark a silver dollar, send a man in blindfold, if by chance he picked the one you pre-selected, it would be the same odds, one in ten to the seventeenth power, same odds of Jesus fulfilling eight predictions. Stoner then went on to calculate the odds of one man fulfilling 16 predictions, and he came up with 1 in 10 to the 45th power. If you were to use that many silver dollars, you could make a silver ball so large that the measurement of that ball from the center to the edge, the circumference, would be the distance the earth is to the sun times 30. 93 million miles, 30 times, would be the center to the edge. Now, paint one, blindfold a guy, send him in the ball, have him find that one silver dollar you pre-marked. It would be the same odds as Jesus did in fulfilling 16, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Stoner then went on to calculate 48 prophecies. His number was the odds are 1 in 10 to the 157th power. At this point, the visual becomes too outlandish to use silver dollars, so he uses electrons. And he says, if you were to count that many electrons, which would fill a, uh, an inch, a cubic inch of electrons on a single plane, if you were to count that many electrons, and you were to count them at the rate of 250 electrons per minute nonstop, no eating, no drinking, no sleeping, it would take you, counting 250 a minute, 19 million years times 19 million years times 19 million years blindfold somebody, paint the electron red, you know, you get the picture. It's just unbelievable. And so the Bible first opens up by appealing to history, by appealing to prophecy. There's a third reason it begins this way. And that is um, the importance of a genealogy to a Jewish person. If you were a Jewish person and somebody comes along and says, I am the fulfillment to your dreams, your wishes. I am the king of Israel, of the throne of David, the Messiah. The first question they're going to ask is, produce a genealogy. Prove it, can you? And so it begins, the genealogy, genesios in Greek. 
The Greek sentence is Biblos Geneseos Yesu Christu. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus who is called the Christ. Paramount to a Jewish person. If you wanted to buy or sell land in those days, you'd have to produce a genealogy so you'd stay between tribal boundaries. If you were to serve in the temple, you'd have to prove that you are of the genealogy of Levi, of the tribe of Levi. And if you claim to be the king of Israel, you must have a genealogy. That's why I found it humorous when I came into church one day, one evening actually, and a guy was there and introduced himself as Jesus Christ. He said, hi, I'm Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to meet you. (laughs) So you say you're Jesus, huh? Yes, I am, my son. Okay, prove it. And so he gave me a book. He says, this book proves it. I said, what is it? He said, this is the Third Testament. Oh, really? The Third Testament? I've heard of the old one, the new one. This is the third one. Who wrote this one? He says, I did. So my first question is, where were you born? Because, you know, let's go back to the genealogy. You know, the prophet said he'll be born in Bethlehem. I was going to ask him his tribe, etc. I said, where were you born? He says, Pittsburgh. (laughs) I said, sorry, first question you got wrong. Get out of here. So the genealogy would prove who, who Jesus was. Now you notice, and it's attested to in verse 17, that it's laid out in three sections of 14 generations, marking the three great stages of Jewish history. From Abraham, the father of the nation, he was called, to David, the first king of the nation, is the first section. Then from the monarchy, David, the greatest king, to the carrying away of captivity in Babylon. That's where the nation went downhill, apostatized, fell away from God. And then from the exile through the return, through the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament, up till the time of Jesus Christ. That's what the genealogy marks out. Um, As I look at the list of names and the generations, it to me is also a spiritual portrait of God's dealing with people. Because every generation that is listed here is filled with some notorious sinners. And yet, here they are. God included them. None of them could thwart the grace of God. It is, it is a record of sin. It is also a record of God's grace up to the deliverer. Every name has some taint of sin in it until you get to Jesus Christ. You know, I've often thought if somebody asked me to, to paint a picture of world history, and they, they haven't for obvious reasons, but if they were, I would choose the blackest paint that I could find. I'd take a gallon of it and I'd dump it all over the white canvas and cover it all black. And then out of one corner, once that paint dries, I would take white streak of the brightest white light that gleams and shines into the darkness, depicting the birth of Christ. For that's what John said concerning Jesus. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men who gives light to every man, every woman entering the world. I heard about a, a, a play that kids put on for Christmas. And, you know, the manger was there and the angels were there and Joseph and Mary and the donkeys, etc. And 
they had a light bulb inside the manger underneath the straw, and they, at the right time they were going to turn off all the lights in the auditorium so that one little light from the manger would shine forth, depicting Christ, the light of the world that shines in the darkness. But the kid operating the lights was a little bit confused, so he shut all the lights off. It was pitch black. And tension was building, especially up on stage. Till finally, in a loud stage whisper, one of the nervous kids said, Hey, man, you switched off Jesus. (laughs) Every Christmas, the world switches off Jesus. Because light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Turn off that light. Get rid of that light. It's all dark until the light has come. Now let's go on to the second section of our outline at least, and that is the practical instruction. I've listed for you in your bulletin three lessons that emerge. There are many more, but we only have time for three. Three life lessons concerning the genealogy, the family tree. Lesson number one, God's promises are reliable. Don't you dare think that God is sitting up in heaven saying, maybe, just maybe, I can pull this off. It's going to be hard. At least I can do most of it. He is a meticulous and detailed God. And I think the genealogies show that as one of the greatest demonstrations. Let me, let me tell you why. You have a genealogy here, but you also have a genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. The problem is they're different. And some say they're contradictory. They are not. They're simply complementary. Because most scholars believe that this, as it says, is the genealogy of Joseph, from Abraham down to Joseph, who was the foster father, not the biological father, of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at verse 16. Joseph is not called the father of Jesus, but the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Luke's Gospel shows the genealogy on Mary's side of the family, Joseph Heli, which is the father-in-law, or Mary's father, and takes it all the way up back to Adam. So you have a genealogy concerning Mary and Joseph. Now, legally, to get on the throne, you have to prove your lineage through your father into the royal line. Jesus... His lineage traces all the way back to David and to Abraham through Mary and through Joseph. But there is a problem. Both genealogies together solve the problem. I want to show you the problem in verse 11. It says, Josiah begot Jeconiah. You see that name? He's the problem. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. I say he's a problem because he was of the royal line, the the ruling line of the house of David. But listen to this. It comes out of Jeremiah 22, verse 30. God says, Record this man Jeconiah as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit upon the throne of David nor rule in Judah anymore. And that's exactly what happened. None of Jeconiah's kids, descendants, ever sat on the throne. His uncle did. Yet God promised that David would have a a lineage that would rule and reign forever, yet God cursed the bloodline. 
So you have a seeming contradiction. A promise to David. A cursing of the bloodline. How do you resolve it? You resolve it by a virgin birth. Jesus was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Her genealogy goes all the way back to David, but not through the royal line, just the bloodline, back to David through another son of David named Nathan. Whereas Joseph's bloodline shows the legal right Jesus would have to the throne, going through Jeconiah back to David, Solomon, etc. That line is cursed, but that's okay. Though you have legal rights, Jesus wasn't born of Joseph, but of the Holy Spirit through a virgin. So God can fulfill His promise and get around His own curse by a virgin birth. That is amazing. And both genealogies show that God is meticulous in fulfilling His promise. Somebody once said rightly, promises may get friends, but the performance of promises will keep friends. That's why God has so many friends. He's made a lot of promises and He's kept them all. Peter calls them great and precious promises. I love this about God. So detailed, so meticulous, and you can rely on them. When you read a Scripture verse, it's going to happen. It's going to work. This is the Word of God. It's reliable. There was a man who loved a girl named Diane. He was in college. He had her picture. He took it into the Photoshop to get it duplicated. So the guy who owned the Photoshop had to take the picture out of the frame in order to duplicate it. Well, as he did, he turned the picture over and he noticed that there was writing on the back, a beautiful note that said, Dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more every day. I'll love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. Signed, Diane. Beautiful, huh? There was a P.S. attached to it. It said, P.S., if we ever break up, I want this picture back. So much for eternal love, huh? I'll love you forever, but just in case I don't. There's no P.S. in God's promises. It's period, going to happen. They're reliable. There's a second lesson in the genealogical record. That is, God's salvation is individual. Uh, the, the, the list of the names show several heavyweights, spiritual giants, David, Solomon, Abraham, etc. But there are other names that are attached to those names because they're the children of those guys that really aren't good. I'll give you an example. Verse 7, Solomon is listed. He was the wisest man in the world. God gave him wisdom. But his... Son Rehoboam is mentioned. He was an idiot. He threw all of God's wisdom out the window. He didn't listen to any of the elders that his father had around him, but just the young guys, you know, kids like himself, and split the nation in two. Then look at verse 8. Jehoshaphat, he was a good guy. 25 years he had an able, godly reign bringing spiritual reform to the land. But then his son Joram is also mentioned in the genealogy. And he was so wicked that as soon as Jehoshaphat, his dad, died, to secure his own position in the throne, he murdered all of his brothers. Then, in verse 10, Hezekiah is mentioned. He removed the idols from the land, especially in the temple in Jerusalem. He restored music and singing as worship in the city. But then notice Manasseh, his son, is mentioned. <laughs> Manasseh was Mr. Idol worshiper. 
He um, rebuilt the high places of worship, false idols. He burned every copy of Scripture he could find. He sacrificed his son as a burnt offering, live sacrifice to one of the pagan gods. Now look at verse 11. Josiah, a godly king, one of Israel's best, he became king as an eight-year-old. When he was 16 years old, he had a spiritual awakening. The Scripture says he sought the Lord. And at age 26, he rebuilt the temple and ordered the public reading of Scripture at all the political meetings in the land. Brought in incredible reform. But notice his son, as we already mentioned, Jeconiah. So you'll have these pious parents and then the next generation is wicked. Now there's a lesson to be learned here. Salvation, redemption, etc. doesn't run in the family. It's not genetic. You can't say, well, you know... Uh, I think I'm going to be okay when I stand before God. After all, you know, Grandma was a godly woman. And my father attended church. He was a preacher. Or my, was an elder. Hey, pray, hallelujah. What about you? You must individually receive the Lord Jesus Christ as penalty for the payment of your sins and not rely on the laurels of your parents or grandparents. It must be acknowledged and received individually. The Bible says, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. You see, God only has children, not grandchildren. You don't get in because you're related to some godly person. You must be individually received. There's a final lesson, and we close with this. That is that God's compassion is inexhaustible. And I'm glad to leave off at this point. A journey through the genealogy in Matthew 1 is like going through the hallway of God's grace. And doors with names on them. Open up the door and you go, ooh, it's bad stuff inside that room. Close it. Open the next door. Ooh, it stinks in that room. And just about every person on this list has some baggage attached to him or her. Abraham is listed. He's a man of faith. He's called the father of those who believe. And yet, even Abraham lapsed in his faith. On two occasions, he lied about his wife, said, oh, that's not my wife, it's my sister. Because he lacked faith. Yet he's called the man of faith, and he's listed here. Then there's David, the greatest king in Israel. But what was he guilty of? Everything. Adultery, murder, cover-up, deceit. Yet he's listed here. God's grace, God's mercy. Jacob is mentioned in our list. A conniver, a cheat. Judah is mentioned, a womanizer. And I tell you why I'm bringing all this up. Because I meet people who often will say, Oh, I'm just not worthy to be part of God's family. Hey, you're in good company. You're in good company. You could fit in this list. Because each of these people had a, had a past. Also something else in closing. If you look more closely at the list, you see something very strange for a Hebrew genealogy. Women are mentioned. It didn't happen. Women had no legal rights in those days. They were considered something that is owned either by a father or a husband. In fact, in certain segments of Judaism, men would wake up every morning and pray this prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not a slave. God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman. How'd you like to hear your hubby praying that for his quiet time, gals? 
So right off the bat, you see in this genealogy a breaking of the barriers to include these women in the genealogy of Christ. That's why I get irritated whenever somebody unknowingly will say, well, the Bible is so sexist, you know, and, and God is like a chauvinist. Really? I don't see that at all. He breaks the barriers. It was Paul the Apostle who said, there's no male, no female, no slave, no free. We're all one in Christ. The barriers are destroyed. In fact, look at some of the gals. Verse 3, Tamar is listed. Her story is found in Genesis 38. Tamar was childless. So she dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law, conceived through incest, bore twins. Then look at verse 5, Rahab. Remember what she's called in the Bible? Rahab the harlot. She didn't dress up like a harlot. She did it for a living. She hid the spies in Jericho. But in the midst of it, she turned to God, to the God of Israel. Her life was spared. Her life was changed as she was converted to worship the true and living God. And she becomes the great-great-grandmother of David. Then, if you look in the same verse, Ruth is mentioned. Not only was she a Gentile, she was a Moabitess. And if you remember, the whole race of the Moabites was from an incestuous union between Lot and his daughters. So much so that in Deuteronomy 23, God said, No Moabite shall enter the assembly of God down to the tenth generation. Here she is included in Jesus' lineage. Why? Because she made a personal decision to follow God. She said on the road to her mother-in-law, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And listen, your God will be my God. She converted and followed the true and the living God. Then verse 6, it says, David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba the girl that David took in an adulterous relationship. The first child died. The second child was Solomon. That's the list. This is the genealogy. This is the family tree, man. It's as if somebody ransacked the Old Testament and got the most unlikely people and assembled them all for the hall of shame. And the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with them. That's the point. The point is this. No one is beyond the reach of a merciful, gracious, forgiving, cleansing God. No matter who you are. Some of these people made a mess of their lives. The family tree is the demonstration of God's grace because Jesus would be called the friend of what? Sinners. The friend of sinners. This makes perfect sense then. Because the angel was right. You will name Him Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. So this is what you'd expect in the family tree of the Savior, the Prince of Peace. So how far back does your ancestry go? Laramie, Wyoming? Austria? Alexander the Great? Or all the way back to the tree, the cross? cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and then a part of God's family tree by faith. That's the question this morning at Christmas. We have presents under our trees. You have given some, you will receive some. 
The greatest gift that God gave was His Son wrapped not in beautiful tinseled paper but skin that was beaten and bruised and bloodied for our sins. So that the greatest gift you could give God today would be your whole life. I turn my life over to you to live in obedience to you, Lord God. That is salvation. And until that decision is made, it's just another celebration without life. Father, we want to thank you for your forgiveness this morning. It means so much. And I personally thank you that you have demonstrated your love, your merciful love, your grand grace by listing those whom you did in this lineage. Failures, many of them. But part of the background included some unlikely characters so that we might even see this is why he came. To erase the past, to bring a new start. Included some unlikely characters so that we might even see. This is why he came. To erase the past, to bring a new start. 